Welcome to another instalment of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Today, I'm joined by Oiku Corral, Matthias Ovsianakas, Ollie Haley and Martin Kroik to discuss the do's and don'ts of gameplay production. And before we started recording the podcast, I did apologise to everyone on the pronunciation of their names. So uh, before we delve deeper into the topic, let's work our way around the room with some small introductions. Uh, Martin, do you want to kick us off? Oh, you want me there, Martin? Classic. Um, hi, my name is Martin Kreuch. I work for THQ Nordic, a publisher based in Vienna, Austria. Uh, and we're part of the Embracer Group. And I worked there as uh, for the last 10 years already. And um, I'm a senior producer, uh, a senior creative producer, licensed games. So I'm on multiple franchises as a senior producer and on an, um, a couple more as uh, only a creative producer, usually licensed games. Uh, our recent games have been, or I take care of the SpongeBob franchise uh, in our company. So I was a producer of uh, Battle for Bikini Bottom Rehydrated, the remake of uh, Battle for Bikini Bottom. And I'm currently producer on uh, the wonderful SpongeBob and the Cosmic Shake. And apart from that, uh, I'm also the producer, lead producer on the Destroyer Humans franchise. Uh, so Destroyer Humans 2 was our latest release uh, in August. August. Perfect. Thank you for that. Well, Hugh, do you want to go next? Yeah, sure. Uh, hello, I'm Kukrol. Uh, I work as a content manager at Rovio. You may know Rovio from Angry Birds, maybe. Uh, for those who wonder why a comment manager is attending a podcast about game production. One, uh, I'm here to kindly remind everyone that when you work too long on the uh, production of your own game, you forget that you're also one of the players of that game. So let's remember to play like a player. And second, uh, I worked as a product manager, producer, translator, and product support lead on different IPs and games from uh, hypercasual to triple A. So I consider myself a generalist in the gaming world. Uh, I hope we get to learn a lot and have fun throughout this uh, conversations. Thank you, Jordan. Back to you. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, Ole? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, hi, my name is Ole. I am a producer at Funcom here in uh, Oslo, Norway. Uh, I've been in the industry for 11-ish years, started out uh, starting my own indie game studio, uh, Quillbot Studio, back in 2011. I uh, was a producer on our projects there, Among the Sleep and uh, The Plan. Uh, also a CEO because it's an indie studio and you have many hats and you do all the things. Um, but yeah, uh, been doing, I was actually educated a programmer, but I've been doing production on like as the main activity, but also been like participating in other things. So I, I do see the generalist, uh, the, the same perspective as well. Like I, I, I do find it interesting that as a producer, I feel uh, uh, to have, the knowledge and the insight into all of those different uh, areas, although I don't consider myself an expert in in Muslim. But yeah, so yeah, currently a producer at Funcom and uh, having a good time here. Uh, last but not least, uh, Matthias. Yep. Hello, everyone. I'm Matthias of Sandikas. Uh, I am an associate producer for characters uh, at uh, Sharkman, uh, based in uh, Malmo, Sweden. Uh, I've uh, worked uh, here for about uh, one and a half years, starting off as a QA uh, coordinator and then moving on to be uh, the associate producer for uh, the character team, uh, working on the content and uh, also consulting our game design team about uh, how to go about everything related to characters. Previous to uh, working at Sharkmob, which is my first uh, job in the games industry, I was uh, a 3D designer, project manager, and product owner for uh, for CG Trader, which is a 3D market uh, model marketplace. And I worked on uh, projects uh, for real-time Web 3D, uh, as well as uh, projects related to game engines, so Unity and Unreal, uh, but not uh, with games directly. Brilliant. 
so now we've got a bit of context to all of you. Let's move on to the topic. So you've all prepared a question slash statement really on the do's of don'ts, the do's and don'ts of gameplay production. So we're going to go around the room asking everyone to ask their question separately and the reasons behind it. So everyone's going to have their own opportunity to give the take on the situation and then respond to the answers that have been given before. So Martin, we're going to start with your question. Right. So my question will be in what detail do you think gameplay can be planned on paper? So when it comes to iterative design uh, in gaming, does it yield better results if you start with a range of prototypes and then explore different ideas um, or to spend more time on paper and uh, refine the core kind of idea that you have for the game or the, the core, core kind of mechanic from which all the other mechanics are derived and then uh, go into prototyping where this is all as everything with games it's always very different depending on the game um, but it, I've seen on the uh, projects that I've been on a lot of uh, different interpretations even of what what does it mean iterative uh, design um, so for some people it's like starting from scratch very often and for others it's no you still have a very strong uh, for, or a very clear first idea and then only iterate that yeah what do you guys I mean think? I would I would like to start if I can. <clears throat> so um, as with everything, the boring answer is it depends. <laughs> and I guess you also <laughs> mentioned that because it depends on the game. It depends on the feature, the mechanic. Um, I do think establishing some sort of ground rules always makes sense to do on paper or in a document or in on the whiteboard or whatever. Just some directional ground rules. So the, that you have some sort of like guiding uh, arrow to point you in in where you want to go, because um, and I've been a part of many many game jams in my life, and uh, a challenge with a game jam is often that you you kind of just start out with some like vague idea of a mechanic, and and without knowing where you want to go, it's kind of you waste a lot of time in in uh, in just thinking or just. Just, just like not daring to take the step because you don't know which step is the right one. So I think just high level plan on paper, always good. And then once you get to uh, to getting something into the game, I'm a big believer of just getting things in, testing it, getting player feedback, just getting it in. Like I've, I've learned that. Like if it's player not, feedback, yeah. If it's not on screen and if it's not something that you're playing, it doesn't exist yet. So it, so get it into the game and get feedback on it as soon as possible is the most important part. But yeah, that's my yeah. starting take on this. Can, can I go plus one on it depends, but maybe from another perspective. So what I think is that sometimes a game doesn't look perfect on paper, right? Doesn't doesn't look perfect in even theory. Yet after execution, um, you realize how fun it is. And yeah, is an example can be look how a bird flipping wings went viral. We all know which game I'm talking about. Also, uh, I think the scale of development depends depends on the um, resources we have. Scale of the if it's a company or a student project. So if you have a dedicated development team with enough time, then you can spend more time on execution, testing, surveys. But for small groups, like if two students gonna create, planning to create a game, then um, I would say they can dream on paper as much as possible and then they can not know where it will lead them. So it depends on the scale of the resources and the company. That was my depends. Thank you. Plus That's one on I that think. one. Thank I completely agree. <laughs> I, I plus one on your depends too. Thank you, Ole. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, it definitely yeah, no. depends on scale. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Uh from my end, yeah, absolutely a plus one to uh, to the it depends camp. Um, and uh, from even experience uh, with game jams as well, 
uh, it definitely uh, pays to have something playable to evaluate. Uh, does this make sense? Does it feel good to play? On paper, for example, the game might be balanced, but then the experience isn't uh, what the player perhaps uh, thinks is fun. It might be just like very cut and dry. And uh, instead, it might be actually more fun for the player to be able to sort of break the rules a little bit uh, or to have that wiggle room, but which on paper might see, for QA might seem like this is heresy. We're trying to make something that isn't like very you know, uh, strict and isn't clearly testable, for example, but uh, on, on the flip side, for the players, it might be just fun uh, in the long run. Uh, and also to break down those, uh, which uh, you mentioned, uh, Ula, which is uh, having a document of what essentially the game is supposed to be or what the mechanics are supposed to be, right? So there, I'm sure uh, there is a, a way to define the technical requirements, first of all, and then what the sort of vision is, like what does the player want to experience and then meet in the middle somewhere, which might be, uh less clear but then once you have those guidelines in place already you can manage that uh that sort of fog uh, and uh, try to find the best balance absolutely i also um looping back to the the size or scale thing it's kind of interesting because um if you have a larger distributed team communication is is critical it's critical at any scale but it becomes mm -hmm. a different beast when you have distributed teams, right? So um, having documentation uh, to go back to, and if if QA is testing a, a feature, testing a, a mechanic in the game, understanding or knowing how it's supposed to work can help them verify, okay, this, this actually is uh, not working as it's supposed to, or am I understanding this mechanic correctly? Or uh, yeah, maybe there's, there's some plans in the document for what the next step is so that that can help them understand where this is heading so i think it might even be i'm still all for like it if it's not in in game like if it's not it should be fun uh, and playable that's when that's when that's what matters but having documentation in a larger team is probably more important than in a smaller team because in a smaller team, like if you're 10 people, it's not very hard to get everyone up to date on what the, what what what's supposed to happen here, right? Yeah. Martin, you're still... <laughs> <laughs> I apologize. I'm always like, since I'm at home, I always want to keep the noises from outside. If you suddenly hear my kids screaming outside and, and dogs barking and stuff like this. Um, so yeah, completely agree. It definitely depends and, and depends on the uh, scale of the team. Um, documentation, I think awesome is if documentation also gets updated because I think one of the big things is, you know, the, the feature gets in the game, you test it, you change it, but the documentation doesn't change. And then that, especially on larger teams, can cause problems afterwards if, if some people rely on what's in the game or what's been discussed in a, in a meeting and others uh, are fresh to it and then look at Confluence or wherever you have the, uh, something written down and they are suddenly confused now what's, what's the single source of truth. Um, I'm personally also a big fan of, but this again depends very much on the game. I'm a story gamer, so uh, it's on these games I think that's more vital. Um, is also like a, a a vision that is easy to communicate and uh, and kind of ties everything together, so that people, if they are unsure at what a feature is meant to do, that they have a, sim a simple vision to rely on where they can hopefully kind of uh, at least guess what the feeling uh, that the feature is meant to kind of strengthen is. So for example, Shadow of Mordor, I think is a great example because even in the title, you have this like Shadow of Mordor and the whole game is kind of around, okay, you're, what lurks in the shadow and what even orcs are afraid of. And then all the features you have the feeling are really pulled from that, even just from the title. So, you know, the feature of being able to brutalize an enemy and then everybody else is scared and stuff like this it all fits very well together with that core kind of spark um so when a, a game pulls that off that's always very impressive to see yeah i agree yep does anyone want to chuck another it depends in anywhere or 
<laughs> well, that depends, I guess. True, true, it depends, all depends, Jordan. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, 100% does depend. <laughs> okay, perfect. Moving on to the next question then, Ula. Um, yeah, we can do that. It's a short one, um, a little bit open-ended. So a critical feature you have been working on for longer than planned is still not finding the fun. It kind of tied into the previous question. And you're running out of time. How do you go about solving this? Well, I can go first this time. Everyone's okay with it. So uh, for me, uh, when it comes down to critical features, uh, it is important to ev evaluate the business value and the implementations of missing out on the publication of that feature. So users, we can say players, will pick up on half-packed features and then it will end up with more pressure on uh, player experience managers such as me now uh, after the services rollout. And in the current market, older games such as MMORPGs uh, and games that are older than 10 years old with complicated code base can get be by published half-baked features. So if something fails, players still trust on the company and the game to fix it and do something better in the future. Uh, whereas most of the consumers in tier, tier one countries wants to stick around long enough to wait for those games to fix that features. But depends come here, like if it's a small scale company or if you're a new game that had global launch recently, uh, if you have a half-baked feature, uh, then it's more likely that your players will not stick or become paying users. So that's what I think. Yeah, I would second that. I think it, the, the first thing I would do is investigate, is this a critical feature? Like, is it actually a critical feature or was it, um, again, depends on the scale of the game. If it's the one feature that the whole game was built around, then you have a problem. But if it's, if it's, uh, if it is one of many features that, that is considered critical, um, I think one of the investigations is, is it as critical as it as it seems? And is it really not fun? Because it often, you know, it might happen that if you've played it too much as a developer, as a development studio, if you've been, you've been, you know, trying it out, changing everything again and again and again to just get external feedback and maybe it is actually quite fun. It just isn't fun anymore after the 100th iteration and little tweak. Um, so I think that's uh, that would be the first two things I'd try and see, like, is the situation as bad as it seems from inside the forest? Or is it from the outside, like, okay, actually, this is quite fun if you tried it for the first time. And uh, otherwise, I'm also a big fan of of actually, you know, taking a step back trying to not fix the the little details and 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 um kind of balancing of the feature but rather see whether there's a um contextual or or kind of a creative uh change of the feature that could help um where the where you maybe not lose all the work that you've put in but where you can use the same feature in a slightly different way in the in the same kind of world that you've created but it does something slightly different so that would be my approach as the external guy who just always was in the lucky position to just always tell <laughs> tell uh, developers like, wouldn't that be awesome? And then leave the room and and say like, okay, have fun <laughs> trying to do that. Um, somewhere where it's always harder to actually execute the things than talking yeah. smart. I, I I did like your point about uh, seeing the forest for the trees, like being inside of this. This like it's so hard to see when you've been playing the same thing over and over again. And I have many personal experiences with that uh, throughout the years. And we, uh, we had a, a, a point in time on my first game, Among the Sleep, that was, we were just basically, we we almost lost hope in the game. And then we released the trailer and people were like, oh my God, this is so cool. And then we kind of realized, okay, maybe we've just been staring at this for too long and, yeah, that helped a lot. Yeah. So I, I, I really, really like that point. Yeah, I, I agree because in the beginning I said like play like a player 
is really hard to do when it comes to, for for example, a tester, like the playing the same level like 100 times and then like you lost the fun, but it's it can be fun. The, the level can be still fun, so. Absolutely. From my end though, the way I at least uh, understood the question was, let's say it is a criti uh, critical feature and then how would through us, let's say as producers, uh, how would we um, go about exactly what you mentioned, Martin, which is uh, how do we take the team and to make them aware that maybe they're within the forest, right? And you can't see the forest for the trees. Um, and just uh, to ask some uh, ground rule questions to the team. So, for example, like uh, whose opinion is it, for example, or how did we arrive at the conclusion that the feature isn't fun? or uh, it's not working as we intended it to, uh, right? Did we do play this? Did we gather uh, like a opinion from uh, outside of our, for example, development group? Did we do user research? Um, uh, also, what it was the vision in, in the beginning? Did we define it clearly enough where we can uh, look back on it uh, and see exactly what we wanted to achieve and whether we're heading in the right direction or whether it's just um, it needs to change right to fit um, the new objective since we're seeing that the original one isn't uh, exactly turning out as we intended and sort of the last question is um, well what's the reality right so how many how much time do we have uh, how much work can the team do as well, right? What what are the resources available to us, uh, and uh, what can we achieve with that? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely, you have to uh, step back and see the the full picture and kind of understand what what are we like, where are where are we, and then if we want to spend more time on this, what are we maybe losing instead, or what do we have to cut instead, or is this actually real really a critical feature? I think you're all yeah nailing this one. Feels like we're raising good points. Yeah. Definitely. Um, okay. Um, it's a nice segue then onto Oiku. Are you ready with your question? Yeah, sure. I'm really curious about your answers for this question. So, okay, you have a have a uh, you have a bunch of departments, teams uh, working for you. You have game designers, data analysts, behavioral scientists, marketing experts. You have to get rid of one of the teams during game production. Which one will you pick and how will you compensate it? I I really found this question interesting when I read it. It was just like, what the? <laughs> I think it's one of the it depends questions. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a big it depends. Absolutely. <laughs> um, can, I, can I ask, you're saying in game production, like, is this like what? stage in in game production exactly. are, we, are we actually in production here Bullet. or exactly so. <laughs> <laughs> at That's the beginning of the project or at the when you put together the team or later on when things get complicated well you can start with it depends and continue if it's a soft launch if it is already planning phase if it is uh it's a triple a game if it is hyper casual we can uh respond in a way that like resonates with your own game that you are working on so uh, you have well, to get rid of one of the teams yeah uh, well i've uh, all the games that i've been doing so far were premium uh games in terms of the the way they are um you know the way you pay for them their payment model was always premium with uh sometimes DLCs or stuff like this, but I've never had a project so far that had microtransactions or was very, was free to play and then reliant on microtransactions or stuff like this, mm -hmm. where I think all the data analysts and behavioral scientists uh, are, have a, play a much bigger role. Even if mm -hmm. you just look at the team's distribution of an a uh, mobile gaming company or uh, a game, uh, uh, online game mm -hmm. reliant on microtransactions, you'll, you'll, immediately have way more data analysts and behavioral scientists yeah. than on a on a kind of old school game, if you will. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, I think it very much firstly depends on what kind of game you're creating. Um, from a publisher's point of view, 
um, um, most of the, like for the kind of games, for example, that we do, I think that uh, a lot of the, out of these one, two, three, four things, only one is necessary at the development mm -hmm. studio and the others can be external, uh, can be external externalized easier. Um, I would say that then marketing experts or, uh, you know, in some way, somebody who has a feel for marketing um, would be the first ones I'd still like to have inside of a uh, game company because, uh, you know, if you spend all your day with a, with the game, you still know it best and you still know best where are the best bits, where's the funny line here or a funny mm -hmm. moment there or a little cutscene there that uh, could be cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, those I think would be for me the the two main questions is like what kind of game, what kind of company are you, what, what kind of uh, business model are you aiming for? Um, and then if it's traditional kind of games, then I would say having somebody who's, who has an eye for marketing is, is helpful because even though nobody likes design by marketing, it's a different way of looking at your game. And mm -hmm. sometimes things that cause problems in taking screenshots or making a good video capture are actually just problems of the game. So if you feel like you can't take a picture of your main character without him being cluttered with background, then maybe the dressing of your game is cluttered and stuff like this. So um, if you have in-house marketing people, um, you'll very quickly get certain feedbacks that might actually also improve the team, uh, the, the game, I think. And data anal analysis and behavioral scientists is always the, the, the thing with data, all the telemetry data you can collect is always the interpretation is the important part. So mm -hmm. collecting data alone, I think, is yeah. is not enough. You then do need the right interpretation of that data or it can lead you very, very astray. Yeah, I'm aware of the question doesn't have like good thresholds. And my intention is not to uh, piss off people like, yeah, marketing expert. They don't know a thing, so get rid marketing. of them. No, 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 no. You just post I, on Twitter. I, there's a first bleep. Goes viral <laughs> my Achievement intention. unlocked first bleep. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, w I was curious about how you prioritize your teams for your own games. For example, from my knowledge, hyper-casual games doesn't have a game designer. So on the contrary, there is UA and data analysts or anyone else can pitch an idea. It's all about marketing KPIs, whereas on the longer-ended production of games. Uh, I think you can have a smaller marketing team. And as you said, Mark, can, you can compensate for that with external marketing services. So, uh, for example, if you're making a pay-to-play games, you probably do not need uh, data analysts that much, for instance. So, um, so, 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 it depends, depends. That's... What I, I feel, think, and I agree with Martin as well. I feel this question is pretty much impossible to answer because it. Our marketing department here in Funcom is amazing. Like they're they're, I, we wouldn't manage without them because they do a, 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 like all of our captures, all of our marketing materials, are and and they 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 they're driving so much of our games, and that's mm -hmm. the the development team focus on making the game. Uh, I, I would never be able to, but I, but I mean, it depends again, as you said, like it, it, if you're a small team of 10 people, maybe that's, that's something you can outsource, but then are you then doing a cop out on the question? Because you're not actually removing like a, a team of 10 people would never have all of these four roles. There would be one person being three of them. Right. So mm -hmm. I, I feel it's impossible to answer, but one thing I thought of when I read the question though, is like, if you're in game production, are there some of these that are less like could, uh, uh, could you say that some of them are less important during that phase of the project and, and then you could hook them on later for example uh, you wouldn't have players maybe or too early in the project or depending I guess if you're a mobile studio you might be testing very very early on real players I'm not sure yeah from the producer if you if you're talking about game production it also depends if you are looking from a product manager perspective or producer's perspective or committee manager's perspective. So I all, I agree with you that it's kind of an impossible question to ask, 
but if you're a producer, for example, I don't think you need marketing experts. Uh, if you're not, uh, if you have a different team of product. So it's all like assembling the team and make sure that releases are on time. So it depends, yes. <laughs> it depends. I, will, I would say that like, I don't know if you need behavioral scientists on any game, on, on every game, not any, on every game. Mm-hmm. Um, because especially if, um, if you have a game mechanic that might be quite unique or quite um, innovative, they might, you know, push you more towards something that has been done before that people already know and that they can uh, already tell you about um, that this worked and this worked like this. And it's the same thing with data analysts. They might be better at telling you like, well, this has been done like this before and it worked perfectly. So Mm -hmm. do it like this. Um, So again, I think the interpretation of the data is the important thing to not make it kind of hinder your creativity more than it actually uh, benefits you um as far as i remember like when i was younger the the um uh, you know when you had to uh, do you want to invert your mouse or not what's inverted and what's not inverted I've, i think has changed over the years so what used to be the standard setting is now if you say inverted and what used to be the inverted is now the standard setting on most games um so at some point that simply that behavior uh, kind of just switched. Um, so I think that's the. Uh, I wouldn't. I would say that some form of game designer, uh, you know, would be good on any game that wants to have good game design. Uh, probably depends on, you know, how many other hats does that uh, person mm. have. So as you said, on a small team, everybody might pitch in with game design ideas. Um, and then everybody might, you know, want to have a game design credit in the in the game. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. From my perspective, I think you, uh, one of the points that was mentioned was whether producers, for example, really need marketing. So from at least my uh, experience working with uh, Vampire uh, the Masquerade Blood Hunt here at Sharp Lab, uh, for us, um, for the game designers and even for content production teams, it was, first of all, having let's say game designers for our project was uh, uh, they're irreplaceable, right? They're the the teams making the product at the end of the day. And marketing was also instrumental in getting community feedback about what the players uh, enjoy, uh, what they would like to see more of, and uh, letting marketing translate that, and as well as feeding, uh, of course, uh, material and uh, cool stuff to the community as well, right? Requesting the right stuff from game designers uh, at times. And then data, the way at least we have it now, uh, the way I think about it is like data analysis and behavioral scientists are interlinked in a way where to talk to, let's say, behavioral scientists, you need some sort of data analysis to make sense of everything that you're getting from the game. If you're, uh, you know, if you're getting telemetry, let's say data, uh, from uh, from your game, so in that sense, uh, it feels like sort of data analysts come first, and then behavioral scientists um, provide an informed opinion based on the data that's uh, that is gathered. And in that sense, probably out of the four, I would say behavioral scientists might be uh, least important. But of course, as we've mentioned, it, it depends <laughs> depends on the on the project and, uh, for example, even how um, fleshed out the mechanics are like are there any right. are there a lot of other games that have tried something similar if there are and it worked before uh, there's a high chance that uh, if you do something very similar it will work as well I would also yeah. say that um, I totally second that in terms of actually bringing them in and analyzing your game they're definitely a step later I would say than marketing experts and game designers but depending on how much you yourself kind of have access to inform- certain kind of information, I do think that even at the beginning of a project, um, uh, you might draw uh, a lot of uh, you know core guidance. Uh, very much depending on your project. So example would be uh, simply like data is always good to decide is something a gut feeling or is something reality, which I think is on game design. There's very often the case of like 
this is how this must be and then it's no this is actually how you prefer it um and how you prefer it is you know usually the way you think everybody prefers it um, until you find out maybe that's not the case so one of those cases i personally like if you give me in an rpg the possibility to play a human or a lion headed uh, kind of uh, lion human i would never in the world pick a normal human like i have no idea why anybody would ever play a normal human if they can play something else i always um, play human <laughs> and that's the interest that's the interesting bit i mean i'm a bit biased because of destroyer humans where you play an alien um and but uh personally i'd, I'd never pick the normal human but research actually uh says like yeah most people will pick the normal human character and that playing the the kind of creature or the um reptile character uh, or something like this like the reptile human or something like this is actually not the first choice of the average player so the average player i think is also on certain level more conservative than we tend to think sometimes mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is you know reflected in games like on the uncharted series or or assassin's creed where you know the amount of monsters kind of gets dialed down more and more and more and more the uncharted ser series is very interesting there where you start with still quite a lot of magic and then it goes more and more realistic over time um and i think there was another example i was thinking of but i'll i think i forgot now but yeah the, yeah, the thing with the with the uh, with the playable characters, I do remember was one time where I thought like, okay, that's interesting data. Oh yeah, there was another example. Sorry, I'm rambling. But um, uh, on the game Grounded, uh, which I think is very very pretty pretty nice game, um, you can change the spiders to just you know blobs, so that people with arachnophobia yeah. can kind of still play the game. So you. It might be a simple knowledge point to know that there are people who are afraid of spiders, but I think especially when it comes to accessibility, then mm -hmm. um, checking, you know, data with a data analyst or with a behavioral scientist beforehand might, you know, give you some input on your game that you might have not naturally thought of um, when it comes to, you know, uh, certain disabilities or uh, fears, all this kind of stuff. Um, there's a lot of data out there to kind of help guide you to to avoid things or have little features in there that broaden your player base. Yeah, I, I completely agree. If it is not a fully released game, behavioral scientists is really essential. But after that, when you uh, have a steady code and steady game that doesn't need anything new, then you don't need them. But for, for example, live mobile games, it is so important to have behavioral scientists uh, and everyone, of course, everyone, uh, because it's always changing and growing. So, Thank I also, um, I also agree. Uh, I do want to challenge it a little bit, though, and it kind of goes back to a point I think you brought up, Martin, earlier, because uh, uh, with behavioral scientists and 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 it's like interpreting the data and making. Uh, conscious choices about how you would like to act on that data is is the important part here, and I feel like design game designers are so core to that. So, um, and and I, I'm not sure if this kind of how this kind of ties into this, but I I, I just wanna if I'm gonna rank this, I would say you definitely mm -hmm. game designers, and then I I would put marketing experts under there, and then maybe. Uh, behavior scientists and data analysts under there. I'm not trying to split those two. I feel like maybe you, uh, they're so dependent on each other in a way. Um, but yeah, uh, but for, for me, um, one point that I wanted to make is uh, game designers, uh, even though their subjective opinion about what is right might mm -hmm. be wrong in mm -hmm. in the sense that like most players would choose a human. This is what challenges diversity in games, right? So you have game designers who are uh, basically challenging what's the norm of games. And I think that's so important. So even though there's some, it depends on the game and what the target market is and, and everything, like all, all of the framing around the game. But I think that's just critical in game design. And humans yeah. are so boring. <laughs> the yeah. way they run and the way they jump. I mean, why would you want to 
jump like a real human. Oh Why my would god! You? It reminds me straight the the kid cat, cats that we play. Yeah, for example. Loves. No, I completely second what uh, what you said, Ole. Um, first of all, because I want more very very different kind of playable characters, but um, I think also on a smaller team, um, you know, the, the question is always what what is data analysis. If you're the guy in your or the girl in your in your team that uh, reads through the reddits, reads through the YouTube comments, checks all the discords and stuff like this. What you're doing is analyzing the data for your mm -hmm. game that you have available within the constraint constraints of your team size and budget. Yeah. And if you go to a game jam or if you go to a, to a game show and you show your prototype and then you see how people play it, you're the behavioral science, behavioral scientist that stands behind them and makes notes and sees like, Oh, actually that, puzzle was way harder than I thought, or that jump is way harder than we thought. Um, and all these kind of things. I think a lot of times it boils down to, hey, this is way harder than we thought. Um, yeah. Oh, I think, yeah, we, we need to fit in another question, right? No, 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 please, please. Jor <laughs> if Jordan is not stopping us, we can't talk forever. It's okay. Yeah, no. <laughs> the only way I'd stop you is if it got to maybe two minutes two and we hadn't got to the final question because I want to respect your guys' time as well. Um, <laughs> so if you want to keep speaking, more than welcome. Or I can bring Matthias in to ask his question in case that goes on for a while as well. <laughs> yeah, please, I'm, Matthias. Yeah. <laughs> I'm okay with jumping on to next. We can we can like, yeah, yeah. come back again. Sure. It's, it's all good. <laughs> Yeah, all right. Uh, so that my question was, uh, what is an effective way to balance technical capabilities with artistic intent for gameplay? Uh, and is in a specific case, so when defining scope, at what point, at what stage should you start saying no terrain and feature creep? Uh, so to set the question a little bit, uh, the way I thought about it was uh, that uh, we are faced with uh, and the teams are faced with uh, technical limitations that we have to adhere to. So whether it's uh, dictated by the platform, the game engine that we're using, or um, target certain targets that we set out uh, for that are required requirements for the gameplay to feel right, for example. And then we have the sort of aspirations of the teams of what they want to make, right? The vision. Uh, so for the visual quality targets that the teams uh, want to uh, meet and also the variety of gameplay right maybe the the team just wants to include a bunch of mechanics that will feel great in their own right and also work together uh, but then at a certain point uh, and i'm not sure whether it is a point or whether, whether there, there might be multiple points or it might be a, a grading scale uh, at a certain point you need to uh, focus the teams back in and decide on what you actually want to work in rather than prototyping, let's say, different parts of games and actually decide essentially what the what the final playable and shippable uh, product will be. So yeah, the, the question then in summary is basically, uh, do you think there is a point there uh, or how in your experience uh, um, have you handled if you had to uh, reining in feature creep? So as as a prime source for feature creep, the publisher producer i can maybe start um, um i would say again it depends of course as is the i think the name of this of this postcards episode um but um yeah the first thing is is whether you've got an ongoing game or a game that has a you know traditional business model of we start here we finish there we release and then potentially a few dlcs or a sequel um, so there's the i think one of the biggest uh differences even though again i've not worked as a producer on an actual you know life uh life game based uh, life based model um so um there i think it's i imagine it'd be even harder to rein in feature creep if you know you have to constantly kind of add little things to the game to keep it um you know to keep it alive um on a traditional game we tend to have actual kind of structures where we that we have standardized across all developers that we work with and all projects. So even though there are differences between the, the games and the, their scope and their kind of genre and all this kind of stuff, we have certain points in the product that 
where we say like, okay, here all the prime features should be defined here. Um, from here on, it's pure production. Um, and after that point, basically, where you say like, now this is feature complete, um, ideally you do not add anything major anymore, like nothing that can actually, um, you know, have a full impact. I think one of the trickiest things in the early discussions of features is um, like, a lot of feature creep that I've seen came from a feature being early on discussed as I will then cut this out if it doesn't work out. And at some point it did get connected to too many things that then when you realize oh, actually we'd love to take that out now, but you can't anymore because it's somehow become too integral um, to cut it out. Um, so that's that then basically just makes it harder to scope a game. I think so mm -hmm. very I would um, say that the best thing you can do is that early on you define a very slim minimal viable product so that the core what do you think like this is um, is the minimum we need on this game so that it's fun and cool um, and then you know have a lot of uh, should haves could haves nice to haves um, because usually the usually there's more uh, features planned for a game than the gamer needs to have fun with. Usually, I would say, mostly the the ideas keep flowing and and there's more plans for oh this would be cool and this would be cool than actually are necessary to create a, a a good base product, and then to kind of avoid you know the 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 pain of losing a cool idea, it's usually good to have a certain DLC strategy or a sequel strategy to know like okay yeah. We can't achieve this now. It hurts. We will all sit down and cry a little over a feature we all wanted to see. But then you keep it, and you know life goes on for on the next project, on the next DLC, or uh, you know you have a place to put it, and then it hurts less. I would say. I completely agree. Well put. Um, I would say. Um, I actually, I'm just gonna pause on that. <laughs> it's just like I, I completely agree with everything you said. Um, yeah. I, I I just maybe want to put some emphasis on figuring out what that core of fun is early on, and then also establishing some sort of <clears throat> tier level so that you don't go like all in on one feature right away, but just establish like this MVP version uh, of of the fun first, and then you can start uh, polishing because. If, once you start adding too much polishing things, you got yeah. some cost fallacies and you got like this uh, situations where you've made something too integral or you feel like you've invested too much. It it muddies everything. As yeah. if, if things are early on and you're able to prove out the fun early on, uh, once a feature doesn't fit in, you've invested very little, easy to pick it out. Like it's easy to like, that, that, that didn't work. Let's remove that. And I would even go as far as saying, like, again, like coming back to my initial question, like how much can you do on paper? I'm, but that's probably because I'm from a writing background. I think you should do a lot on paper. Um, so uh, from the vision of your product, if you have a clear vision of um, features-wise, do you look at a? Are you looking at a very horizontal or very vertical game? So not in terms of how high can you jump, but rather. Is this a game that has a small set of a genre that has a small set of key features like a Mortal Kombat, but a lot of depth to those features? So I hit you, you hit me. But if I'm if I'm a, a super hardcore Mortal Kombat player, the the kind of things I can achieve are ridiculous. And then on the other hand, uh, do you have a game that is more uh, horizontal, which has a lot of different things you can do, but each of them don't have that much depth are not as complicated. So if you have that at the beginning, you already have a good guidance on how many features are you looking for. And then I think the the, the good old Nintendo rule of repetition, how often do you need to repeat that feature for it to say like, yeah, this makes sense to be in the game is also a good kind of early check. If you feel like, hey, this is feature is great, but then you realize, oh, but we're only going to use it once or twice in the game because it doesn't fit into the story or it doesn't fit into the levels or it's just way too hard to pull off more than that. Then you also have another checks and balances to say like, well, if we can only do that once, 
do we really invest that money or is it something that yeah in this game we only do it once but in the next one it's a it's a regular feature so it's worth investing that uh, time and money now i agree with everyone maybe i can summarize in three bullet points like okay plan uh, have a good product strategy with a clean and precise plan so you can focus on the core features two lots of a b testing uh, because most of in most cases, commercial goals determine the new features. So when we understand how users engage with set features in our game, we can extend the plan in a controlled manner. And third, uh, develop the knowledge base. Uh, and also when you have a sold product vision and nice documentation, paper, 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 on paper, uh, saying no to feature creep is so easy because you already agree on the product's identity and roadmap and everything. So. Yep. Yeah, I think the, the, the good thing about, or the important thing on features, I think, is always to remember that you always, the, the, the problems you know from the features you already tried mm -hmm. are usually they hurt more so you the grass is always greener on the new feature where you haven't encountered the problems yet but they're all gonna have problems and they're all gonna cause problems so i think that's one of the things and it's keeping a good eye on which problems does your feature cause to other features but i think that's kind of basic but it's like um even that it can sometimes be it can be easy to to think like oh this this kind of uh, stuff is so fun. This is so so much fun, and then it gets hard to drop it, even mm -hmm. though there's a lot of other problems that that feature might cause you. Like, you know, it's way fun funnier to be able to jump five meters, but then your level needs to be way bigger. Stuff like this, simple stuff like this, where you say like, yeah, we've tried out to jump way higher, and it's way more fun than to not be able to jump higher. Well then, no. you know, is it worth it? It, it, it? Yeah, is it worth it, or can can this actually then can the rest of the game be adapted to it? If you run <laughs> twice as fast, you need a way longer level. Suddenly you're in Sonic. Um, these kind of things. Yeah. Perfect. So uh, I think we'll leave it there then. So this has been the Evolution Exchange podcast. I want to take this opportunity to thank my guests. Uh, Matthias, Ula, Martin and Oiku for providing your insights into the topic and thanks everybody for listening. So if you would like to get involved in one of the upcoming podcasts, reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email at jordan.loud at evolution-nordics.com and I will see you all next time. Thank thanks you so Jordan. much.